Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, Adam Kinzinger, U.S. Representative from the 16th Congressional District in Illinois, on core values, national security, and more. You know, life is quick, it's fleeting, and as a 43-year-old, I guess I'm at midlife now, you realize how quick those first 43 years went. The next 43 are going to go pretty fast. I say this facetiously as a kind of a joke, but sort of serious. If China nuked California, most Republicans would say, good, now we can win the next presidential election. Or if China nuked Texas, Democrats would say, good, we can now win the next presidential election. It's sad, but that's what I feel like. Adam, welcome to Chatter. Uh, what does freedom feel like? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, look, it's, it's interesting because I, what was it, Monday, flew into D.C. I fly myself now. And... Uh, we landed, and I've, you know, I've been at this job now, I guess January will be 11 years, and this was the first time probably in like, I was thinking about it, maybe six or seven years, where I landed in D.C., and amazingly, it was just like, whew, felt great, right? Usually you land here, and you talk to any congressman, they'll tell you if they're honest, the second you land in D.C., there's like this weight that comes on top of you, like, here's what I got to do this week, all these big issues. This was the first time I landed, and I was just like... I don't feel that. But you still had that. You still had your schedule. You still had your yeah. staff telling you what, what you had to do and when, but it, but it feels different. It does. It's like, you know, here's the thing. When you're in this job, you, you, I kind of equate it to being like a pastor, right? If you're a pastor, your job is all-consuming. I mean, you could be at a bar, maybe not as a pastor, but you'd be at a bar as a priest or something, and you're still a priest at a bar, right? Yeah. You're not just Jim at the bar. It's kind of that way with Congress, where like if you're at the bar, um, you're still a congressman at the bar. Mm -hmm. And so when you come here, you've got things like your actual job here. You've got the fundraising you have to do. You have your re-election that's always sitting over you. You have whatever the latest drama of the day is. And you at least get to knock a couple of those out. Now, you still, you still have to vote, yeah. right? You still have to participate on any committees that you might be in right now, mm -hmm. like the January 6th committee. Yeah, little You've still like got that. work to do. You've still got a lot of work to do. Um, but you don't have to worry about re-election. Right. Uh, that's liberating, but it also puts a new burden on you because you've got to think about what you're going to do next. It does. It does. And it's, you know, the re-election side of it, it's it'll never happen because you know everybody will give lip service to we need longer terms in the house and then all of a sudden if somebody pushed for longer terms in the house you know people would say oh they're just trying to get themselves a better deal right you know congress hasn't had a pay raise in 12 years and so now it's hard to have people with family come to dc and do this job because most people don't understand we have to pay for apartments out of our pocket. There's no cost of living. And, and you know, my apartment's 2200 bucks, right, out of my paycheck. And so it's the same when it comes to that. And, and so you'll always be in this two-year cycle. But I think, like, the, the fact that, you know, I'd say even 10 years ago, you didn't really think about re-election until a year out. And now it's the next day. It's literally the next day after you're sworn in. And I think that's part of the problem we've been seeing. Well, I wanted to talk to you primarily about values and how you how you execute those values in service, whether it's Air Force service, congressional service, and, and where those values come from. So let's dial the clock back a bit. Uh, let's go back to central Illinois, where both of us yeah. are from. Now, I know you spent some time in Florida, too, but we'll ignore that because <laughs> I, I think you purged the negative influence yeah, there. But... Um, well, mostly. Uh, <laughs> Central Illinois is, is the, the land of Lincoln. I got my, my Lincoln socks on because I still feel it. And there is, there is something there about, you know, small-town-ish America and the, the schools and the environment that I, I feel like there is an emphasis on some of the things that you've been talking about a lot recently, like honesty, respect, just fundamental ethical principles. Talk to me about your earliest memories of where that came from. Was it family? Was it community? Was it a combination? Yeah, so my earliest, my earliest real memory of politics was I was six years old. Uh, lived, we lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and there was a guy running for mayor that went to our church. He was a Democrat. It goes to show how the parties have switched, obviously. And uh, I just was obsessed at six years old. Well, fast forward, we moved to central Illinois, to Bloomington, and I started getting involved in the McLean County GOP. At the time... 
the Republican Party was like bar none unchallenged in, in McLean County. Now it's pretty much a swing county. Um, I got involved with the Jim Edgar campaign. I remember walking around for Greg Bays, who was running for treasurer, with like asking neighbors if they'd put a sign up. I was a weird kid. But these right? are in the days before we knew that virtually every Illinois governor was destined yes. to have criminal charges. <laughs> yeah, with the exception yeah. of Edgar, probably. You know, right. but um, yeah. And so it just, from a political perspective, that was kind of early. I started at like twelve years old. From the personal perspective, look. My dad, I think he could have run a large, you know, Fortune 500 company. He ran the Home Sweet Home Mission. Mm -hmm. He was he was dedicated to nonprofit, to helping people. My mom was a public school teacher, um, you know. And then just kind of my spiritual upbringing of understanding that, you know, life is quick. It's fleeting. And as a 43 year old, I guess I'm at midlife now. You realize how quick those first 43 years went. The next 43 are going to go pretty fast. And uh, your time here on Earth is pretty pretty short. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? If it's gaining power just to gain power, that's a hollow feeling. If it's, you know, to do the right thing, that's a good feeling. And leaving the world in a better place for yeah. your children. Yep. Which, congratulations. You Thank you. January, Thank you. right? January, yeah. 14th. Yeah. I think it's coming. I think he's coming early, but January 14th. And with my vast parental experience, I predict <laughs> he's coming early. Not the doc. I will overrule the doctors on this one. <laughs> uh oh. You know, you know what challenging doctors is leading to right <laughs> yeah, now, right? Yeah, true. That's true. So let's talk about that a little bit more. You said your father working with the the home sweet home, the mm -hmm. faith based charity issues. That's something as a six year old or even an eight or ten year old. That doesn't necessarily help you grok the big questions in life, like mm -hmm. you know, life is fleeting and we need to make a difference. How did that actually translate? What's the mechanism? by which your father working in that led to you having these thoughts? Was it conversations with him? Was it observing him? I think it's both. I think, and I think, you know, if you'd have taken 14-year-old Adam or 16-year-old rebellious Adam, I went through quite a rebellious time, uh, including failing out of ISU, you know, the first semester with, you know, second semester with a 0.8 GPA, which you have to earn, by the way. Illinois State University yeah. probably has a wall of shame of 0.8 GPAs. It does. Well. They took it down, though, when I became a congressman. And, uh, but, no, I mean, it's, it's, I think if you'd asked me then, I'd, I'd start to have those values, of course, but the bottom line is I would look at it and go, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the future is. But when I'd hear my dad, you know, talk about helping people and stuff, that, that, that starts to author something in your heart. I also think everybody's born with kind of something authored in their heart that's going to point to where they are. A kid really good, for instance, at, you know, baseball statistics. Very well may end up being a coach someday or a manager. And um, But I think, I, I don't know if it's jumping too far ahead. I'll talk a little about the military and where I think that solidified it. Yeah. Um, you know, going into the military was after 9-11. I had made the decision any way I wanted to go in, but 9-11 really kind of was the impetus. You know, I was always convinced that you had to be great at math and science to be an Air Force pilot. Obviously, you don't because I got to become one. Um, but there was two key points in my life that really, I think, turned it on a dime. The first was in 2006. There was a stabbing incident in Milwaukee. Um in which I had to intervene on a guy murdering his girlfriend. And um, that's a moment when you make a decision to give your life for somebody you don't even know. And I don't say, look, I, to be honest with you, I probably would never even have the courage to do that again. But at that moment, I remember two distinct thoughts. One is, I can't watch him finish murdering her and live with myself the rest of my life. Right. But the other distinct thought was, um, I can't watch her, I, I, I can't basically... If I fight him, I'm going to die. Because he had a knife. I'd fight a guy with a knife before, with a gun before a knife any day. Um, but that's a moment when you just like, everything kind of, it's clarified. But that's interesting. You, you're, you're talking about it now, in retrospect, like it was an intellectual moment. You, you had those two thoughts, you calculated it, and then did it. It wasn't pure instinct. It wasn't that suddenly you found yourself doing it, and then had the rationalization later. It, you know, it was, it was interesting, because people ask me all the time, like, was it your military training? Because I think their impression is that we learn how to ninjutsu everybody, right, and snap their necks, which isn't the case, particularly as an Air Force pilot. Yeah, you're, um, you're not exactly famous for right. taking on knife wielders. <laughs> We're not like the special ops guy. But, you know, what, it, what Air Force training does do, and particularly pilot training I can speak to, is it takes fast-moving things, you know, when your brain basically shuts down, and it teaches you to think through it. So there's always the mantra in flying planes. 
Anal maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take appropriate action, land as soon as conditions permit. And what that drives into you, you could be flying, you could have smoke, your engine could fall off, and you don't overreact. You stop, you maintain aircraft control, and you move on. And that's, in this case, what happened. So there was some rationality and also just some instinct, right? I, if somebody would have whispered in my ear to run, I would have run. I mean, I, I wasn't like, you know... Um, but thankfully through God and whatever else it was, it was successful. That changed, that changed a lot. And also being in Iraq and seeing people that give their lives for the country, mm -hmm. I made the conscious, this was very conscious when I ran for Congress, I said, if we're going to ask young people to die for their country, we have to be willing to give up our jobs for the same cause. I thought I would like take a career ending vote on things like social security reform, right? <laughs> No idea it would be like those aren't the times we find ourselves in. <laughs> no, it's just the basic preservation of democracy, but yeah. it's worth it. Before the Air Force, mm -hmm. uh, there you are, you know, going to high school, and you're you're learning about politics beyond what you talk to your family about, beyond what you've observed from your father about public service in in one sense. Um, and you have some teachers, and I've kept in touch with one yeah. of those teachers from high school who happens to have been one of your teachers as well at the same high school. Uh, Joe White was a government teacher. You, you remember Joe. Yeah. Um, what do you remember from your first exposure to uh, classroom discussions of politics and government and, and how that led to this path of the Air Force and Congress? So it's always interesting because I remember, you know, both government and junior high. I went to Parkside Junior High. <laughs> um, and then at Normal and ultimately Normal West when this new high school was, was created. And what I loved about it, and I'll even say this translated into when I did government stuff at ISU, mm -hmm. is at the time, I mean, look, my teachers were probably far more liberal than I was. I am now far more liberal than I was, you know, because I was, I was a kind of an antagonizer. I would go like the most conservative thing possible just to like, you know, rile the crowd up. I'm not going to say that Joe White told me that, but I'm not going to say he did. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I think back to some of the things I was saying, I'm like, oh man, that could kill me if somebody, but, um, but I think to me that was my, that was my way of developing the ability to stand on your own and to stand and defend your own principles amidst a crowd that, you know, 20 kids are saying like, you're insane. Um, and what I remember about particularly Joe, uh, people like Mr. Keogh, mm -hmm. Fred Walk, um, is encouraging us to explore that, to debate, right? They didn't come in and say, Kinzinger, you too, you're too conservative. Here's what you should believe. They would, they would talk about the ritual of government. They would, they would encourage within the class that discussion. I hope that's still happening in places, you know? But that's the thing that I think developed me to the point where I didn't become a crazy, you know, Freedom Caucus congressman. I'm actually probably, I would say, one of the ones that's the most advocating for everybody working together. Mm -hmm. And I think that value started right there at Normal and Normal West. Your, your mother was a teacher too, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah, third grade. So, I tried to substitute teach for her once. Ooh, so in third between, graders are rough. Oh, dude. So it was in between uh, officer training and pilot training. I had like three months and I thought I'd go substitute teach. I loved junior high. I did my mom's class once and I hated it because I use ration and I'm looking at a kid literally staring at the ceiling and I go, dude, <laughs> what's up on the ceiling? And you, you can't ration with people. Maybe that'll help me for when I have a kid. But what about at a different grade level? I mean, you, you have that experience from your mother. You obviously had some memorable teachers in both high school and, and at uh, Illinois State. Would you want to teach at some level at some point? No. Why? Because um, not, not every grade level stares at the ceiling. Yeah, right? you're right. Uh, you know, I guess, look, I, I haven't thought about it in a while. I, I like to, I want to get paid a little more than these good, you know, public servants do. Um, but I, I think when it comes to things like if I could teach as a hobby, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of like share what I know in, I, I guess I would be interested in doing it in high school, not full time. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe in college where it's just like, here's what I've been through. Here's right. how I can kind of help you. Um, and that's what I try to do like with Country First is just tell, particularly the next generation, they are going to be the ones that have to save this country. Because all the old people in office now, they are, they are so vested in these 50 years ago arguments and the, the political matrix we're all plugged in. They're not going to fix anything, mm -hmm. right? I mean... This like this, this is not gonna fix it. It's gonna be the young people that have to come along.
Yeah. I'll put us in that. So, I'll put us in the young, young people. Yeah, youngish. Well, given young-ish. the demographics of your colleagues around us, we'll take it. That's, yeah. We are in the youngish side. Yeah. So you did something unusual in college, uh, especially for somebody who had such a horrendous first semester. <laughs> yeah, Some people bad. choose to you know, put their head down and focus on the grades and make their parents proud. Some people choose to you know, <laughs> Not just, make their parents proud. just go drink for the next four <laughs> right. years and party and... Some people decide to run for the county board while they're in college. What were you thinking? So it's a funny story. So I'll I'll tell my kind of college thing. So as a guy that was interested in politics young, you know, the thing is, I hate to say the term popular. I was more popular than than I realized, but I always felt like I was an outcast because of that, right? And that's the part of the thing. So I try to... I was talking to a kid recently in junior high and just saying, man, just so you know, this is the toughest time of your life. It is, right? Bear through this. It all gets better. But so I started drinking in high school mainly to be cool. And, uh, you know, and I I never actually told this story until basically a few years ago because I realized like this is actually, it's not an embarrassment. Some of it's funny, but it's a lesson to people, I think. And so then I went to college, kind of I was on autopilot. I had no desire really to go to college, but I was like, well, that's of course what I'm going to do next. Applied to ISU. ISU, by the way, Illinois State's like an appreciating degree. It gets better every year, the school does. When I got in, it was, you know, somebody like me could get in. It was there. Yeah, it was there. And, uh, and so that's to ISU's credit, by the way, is it's getting better. But so I go there and I join a fraternity. Of course, which was dumb, and uh, but wait, I'm proud wait a of minute. my. I have to pause on the fraternity one <laughs> because a few years before your time, yeah, there may have been a group of elementary school children, um, many of whom may have been friends of mine, one of whom may have been me, who made the habit late at night of sneaking out of our houses with cartons of eggs <laughs> and egging the fraternities. Oh yeah, on the uh, I guess it would have been the west side of campus. Yeah, you like hit Signu mine. Signu and others. Yeah, because that's where uh, I was. Yeah. Sigma Alpha Epsilon. We were in that little. Yeah. Area. Well, I, I apologize for what I did to no, the house you lived in. I would I would go with you now, um, <laughs> but uh, no, we look. I, I so I went to school. Obviously, that was my interest, and and uh, I remember you know first semester was okay. I mean, I got C's basically. Second semester, point eight. Again, that's four D's and an F if you're doing the math. Got kicked out of school. And that allowed me six months. I went and worked at Kay's Merchandise oh, yeah. as a quote furniture department manager which made eight bucks an hour. So it's not that cool. And, but I, the, here's the funniest thing that very few people know the my man the store manager's daughter, I thought was really cute. My cousin was trying to get us to meet. So she had told her dad, Chuck, if you're listening, Chuck, uh, at one point that she was going to meet me and he goes, Oh, him? No, I forbid you from dating him. Yeah. Because you were that bad of a manager of the furniture department. I pretty much sucked. And, uh, but that was actually the best moment for me, not just the, that's a funny aside, but I'm sitting there and there's nothing wrong with the work. But I looked at it and I go, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And I got my life straight on the drinking side. I got my life straight kind of spiritually and I applied and ISU thankfully gave me another shot and I got back in and I got all straight A's after that. So I graduated, but in the, like right shortly after I went back to school, I was at a Republican meeting and a good friend of mine, his name's Lee Newcomb, uh, he's, he's since passed, he, uh, he told me jokingly, he said, you should run for the county board. And I lived in a district where there was, so there were 20 county board members, only three were Democrats, because this is old school, you know, Bloomington. And I made the decision to run, very nice guy, his name's Alan Ware, um, and I actually ended up beating him. The funny story about that is, you know, back in the day, particularly if you're running for county board, you do a lot of door-to-door. Yeah. I realized early as a 20-year-old, I can't do door-to-door because mm-hmm. I look like I'm 11. So I would call people on the phone and okay. I won like, I don't know, 54, 46 or something like that. And was it, was it just because Lee suggested the county board that, that was why you did that instead of running for the town council, which, mm-hmm. which might have made sense for you as well? Or honestly, running for student government at ISU yeah. instead of jumping to county <laughs> governance yeah. when you're still trying to uh, rescue your GPA. Yeah, I mean, look, it was interesting. I think it was just because... Maybe that election was coming up. You know, it was uh, unlike the city council, county board's a partisan race. Right. So I could run as a Republican. Um, and it just made sense. And I think I looked at it and was like, what's the worst that can happen? I lose, right? Right. And, but I ended up, I ended up winning. And, you know, the, the, the best lesson from that, though, county board's fine. Local government's fine. 
But the one, the, the valued piece of lesson, the valued lesson I remember is Lee Newcomb and Matt Sorensen, who was the, he ended up becoming the chairman of the board, both told me, you're so young, because this was before young people got involved in politics, they all do now. But he's, they said, you're so young for a year, don't say anything, just listen. And I was like, because, you know, my tendency as a young guy is to go on and ex express all my knowledge I know of stuff. To show everybody older than you just yeah, how much smarter you are. just how smart I am. And, uh, you know, Matt, I'll call it the Madison Cawthorn thing, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I went on it for a year. I was just dead quiet. And then on that 13th month, I spoke. And people listened because I didn't say a word prior. Now, county board issues, from my memory in McLean County, don't often involve national security issues. No, they don't. Did you at this point have any interest in national security or were you really focused on the gritty partisan politics and ideological issues? It was all, I love national politics and I love national security. And I, you know, it's weird and I don't know if this is what led to it or if this is like kind of a result of what's naturally built in, but there was a game I got on the computer in 1991 called Shadow President. Oh yeah! Oh, the coolest yeah. game, and they like if you're a developer out there listening, do another one. Um, but you go on, you're president of the United States, and you you actually do like foreign policy stuff, go to war, you can build economies, whatever. It's a cool game, but that's like through that game, I actually developed a, a great knowledge of geography and where stuff was. I learned about countries, and I think I, I don't know if that was again. I already had the desire, and that helped. Or whatever, but that, I give that game actually a lot of credit for, for my interest. What was your formative national security event? And I mean by that, you know, what was the war that you remember first? I mean, the 1990-91 Gulf War, you yeah. were still pretty young, but you might have seen the TV images because that was a TV war. You mm -hmm. saw the, the, the missiles going into Baghdad because CNN was reporting from the hotel. Yeah. Um, whether that or later in the 90s, what, what do you recall really spurring you to think more deeply about national security. So it's interesting. So I had joined, I just joined Civil Air Patrol when I was like 12. And right around, maybe 11, because right around that time we invaded Panama. And uh, I had a uniform and me and my friends were walking around the neighborhood with my uniform on, like pretending like we were fighting in Panama, right? So that was cool. And uh, not really, we're not, you know, but that's what we were doing. And so that kind of like was the first real war I remember. Yeah. Um, maybe a little of Granada. Um, but Desert Storm was huge. You know, in, in junior high, Miss Inbaum's class, mm -hmm. we were sitting there, and she, by the way, is a, is a constituent of mine now, which is cool, but we would sit there and watch CNN as they, as, you know, and this was just Desert Shield, so this is all the lead up, and that's basically all we did in social studies, watch CNN, so. That's, it was that's not a bad education It's not for a bad that education, age. yep. And uh, I, you know, told everybody my brother was going to the war. It's not true. That's a whole nother funny Ooh, story. So much about, you know, yeah. so much for honesty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just wanted to be cool. And, yeah. uh, but it's, it's a whole long, amazing story. Uh, that anyway, there was a cartoon that was published in The Onion 10 years ago about it because I submitted the story for Pathetic Geek Stories. So anyway, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole nother podcast. But I remember then when Desert Storm kicked off, I specifically remember I was outside. Do you remember like in Illinois, sometimes the sump pumps, as they expel water, they freeze and mm -hmm. you always create that little lake. Absolutely. In so I was out there ice skating in my shoes on the lake at night for some reason. And my mom comes out and she's freaking out. Like, where have you been? Like somehow I was in Iraq or something. And she goes, we're bombing Baghdad. And I remember that. And we go in and, of course, watch CNN. So that was the first thing I remember. Yeah. And then from then, I was hooked on foreign policy. Kosovo, you know, um, uh, Serbia, uh, all, Desert Fox, all those little actions in Iraq. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, then going into the Air Force mm -hmm. um, and 9-11 being one of the triggers, even though I think you said you, you thought you wanted to do that anyway. I did, yeah. What, what was driving you before 9-11 and how did 9-11 take it up to 11? So I went through, I went through a whole bunch of iterations of when I was 17, I, I actually joined the Army Reserve. I went to the unit and um, didn't end up shipping to basic because I, because I, this is mean, but the unit was not a unit I really wanted to join. So they they did what the entry level discharge. So then I'm going through college like okay, I think I'm going to go fly Chinooks for the Army Guard because I could do that now, or I'm going to go you know through officer training with the Army Guard. Even considered at some point the Marine Corps. I mean I was all over the place, but the reason I was avoiding the Air Force particularly was again. 
I, it's kind of that self-esteem thing. I'm like, I'm not going to be good enough to be an Air Force pilot, you know? And you really wanted to be a and pilot if what, you were going to the Air Force. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that whole story is, is amazing at how I ended up getting selected and stuff. But um, I just knew that, like, that service is something I wanted to do. But I also, you know, was, you're always scared to sign on the dotted line. I always tell yeah. kids when I talk to them now, I go, don't let the commitment intimidate you. Particularly as a pilot, it's a 10-year, it's a 12-year commitment. And, uh, but it goes by so fast. But that was, 9-11 then, it's just, it went from, like, this is what I want to do to this is what I need to do. And I had the worst job. It was a great job, but it was the worst job for sticking around Bloomington because I worked at STL Technology Partners. I was pretty awful as a salesman. You can ask my friend who, who hired me. Um, but it was right at the airport. And I remember at noon on a Wednesday watching planes do touch and goes. And I'm like, how the heck can I fly airplanes during the day? And, uh, and I remember another specific time out, I kind of like go out walking and do my praying and thinking and stuff. And I looked up and I saw this big airliner and I'm just like, I could be doing that. So that was what kind of was the trigger with 9-11. See, my memory of Bloomington Normal Airport was when Air Force One came into town mm, yeah. for the George H.W. Bush campaign in 1988, I think. Yeah. I saw him in Peoria that year. Yeah, because mm -hmm. he did an event, I think, at ISU mm -hmm. uh, because the college Republicans were, were involved. I wasn't at ISU, but uh, I was in high school at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it must have been 88. And you also remember that at Bloomington Airport in the old terminal, you were either at Gate 1 or Gate 2. That was it. That was it. Yeah. Gate uh, 1, duh. Well, my dad, <laughs> my dad going on business trips, it was, you know, you, you walk right out to the airplane. They didn't even have the gates yet. It was you just awesome. walk right out. You know, you walk up to the plane. You bang on the window to say goodbye to your dad. Yeah. And the pilot kind of waves you away so they yeah. can take off. It was amazing. Uh, different world, right? Yeah. Let's yeah. get back to that. Props. I, wouldn't that you be know, nice? Growing up, everything was great. Well... I don't know about that part, <laughs> but you did, you did a lot of throwing up enough in college. That's, That's enough. Right. That's, That's enough. right. Yeah. So you're in the Air Force, and one of the things that the Air Force uh, does is leadership training. Yeah. Right? And some of these values we've talked about, some of the, the things that you've thought about politically, some of the things you've exercised on the county board, suddenly they're actually training you to be a leader and to advance these values you know, for others that you're working with. Um, how did how did that sit with you? Did that did that take it up a notch for you, or did it simply reinforce what you already knew? I think to an extent it t it took it up a notch because it would it, it's the first time then, particularly when you inherit your commission, um, it's the first time you really in my life that I've really been in charge of people and and not not like I don't know maybe I was wait in wait you were you were a furniture. Department yeah. manager at K's yeah. Merchandise. But they, but my employees were revolving. Yeah, and uh, you know they didn't, they didn't like sticking around. So they just yeah. called me a manager, but I was basically just the furniture department guy. But, but in, the Air, in the Air Force, it's real, and you actually are, you're actually trained to think life and death. This yes. is leadership that that matters. Yep, and that's what you, that's what I think was the, was the real moment is. When you, when you get your commission, you know, I remember getting my first salute. I don't remember who it was. I was walking to the BX or something. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to give a silver dollar out when you get your first salute. I felt super cool. But that's like the, the things they teach you is less about even here's how to be a leader. It's more about like how to time manage, how to put, you know, the, your, your, the people under your command in essence above yourself. But really I consider officer training more of a passport into the military. Where I learned a lot was in pilot training because I went in, so initially I had an active duty pilot slot and a month before I was shipping to that, to that OTS, I got hired by the Air National Guard and the Air Guard is the best gig, by the way. So I ended up going to pilot training in March of 04 and I knew what plane I was gonna fly because I was Air Guard, but most of the guys with me uh, had to compete. So there's that interesting dynamic where you're judged on how well you work together, but you're also competing with each other for the best airplanes. If you're number one in your class, you get the pick of what's available. Maybe it's an F-16 or an A-10. If you're last, you're going to be stuck with whatever you don't want, right? But that was the best thing to learn. And I think that's something I can say most directly translated into my job in Congress. It's where you learn... Um, how to compete with each other to an extent, but also work together. You know, of all these members of Congress out here, this is, I'll, I'll say, prior to the current iteration of where we are in this crazy world. You know, yes, we were all competitive. We were running for different seats, uh, you know, on the committee. 
we were, but we all had to figure out how to compete and work together. That's something, by the way, that's gone. But I'd say that's some of the best leadership stuff I learned early. Are you more Team Maverick or Team Goose? I'm not even going to raise Val Kilmer in this conversation because yeah. I don't want you to answer that. Maverick for sure. Why? Yeah, because he's cool. And uh, no, I think what I, if I look at like the Maverick Goose dynamic, like Goose was that supporting role and he died. So maybe I am Goose, right? Because I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting killed in this process. What I do, what I do like about Maverick, besides he's being cool and, and that helped me to decide to fly airplanes, um, was just kind of, he, he, I think if you look at what is the lesson of that movie, it's, hey, he would do things that like would go out and kind of challenge the status quo. Sometimes he'd hit a brick wall. Sometimes he'd you know, get yelled at for doing a flyby of the tower. So I'm going to go with Maverick. Yeah. And I think the new Top Gun has to be released now. It's been two years. I get COVID, but get this thing out. I want to watch it. Maybe you can get a private screening. Yes, right? I hope so. Hook you up with some yeah. contacts. I was trying to get a cameo in it, but that never worked. I didn't actually try that hard, but that would have been cool. But in cases like that, you blame staff. Yes, I blame staff. Yeah, yeah just saying. I blame staff. And I always say this too, like if you need to kill a congressman off, Ooh. I'm happy to be that congressman. Ouch, Ouch. there's yeah. a metaphor there. I just there don't know what is. it is. <laughs> so you're, you're in the Air Force. You do serve in Iraq. What was, what was the worst experience in Iraq? What was the thing you saw that awakened something new in you or made you think even more seriously about some of these issues? So it's interesting because I think when you look back at war, a lot of the bad, so if you don't, like I don't have PTS from it, you know, I, I, while we did violent things, when you do it from the air, it's got a different feeling than when somebody does it on the ground. Um, and you, you typically filter out over time the bad things, right? And you only think of the good stuff. The, one of the worst things that happened to me was a camel spider on my hand, which is... It, Google camel spider, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I think I, I loved, I will say though, honestly, I loved almost every moment of being there. I loved the missions. I loved when we, you know, would kill bad guys because the people we were going after, even though we didn't drop missiles, but we found people and then would basically direct fire or direct the special ops in. It was all top secret at the time, which is, to me, is sad because I only have like two pictures from my whole time in Iraq. I didn't even keep a journal because technically we weren't allowed to. It's a regret I have. Um, but I, I loved it. What I loved was being with the fellas, right? You know, we couldn't drink beer. That was a bad part, but we ended up getting a hookup with the British SAS. Thank you, Brits. Um, but I think like for me, what, what really impacted me about Iraq was, you know, this idea of teamwork, the fact that when we talked about politics, which we did a lot because we were bored, um, we had Democrats in our, you know, most obviously military officers are Republican, um, we had some Democrats and it was never disrespectful. I would just be like, how can you be a democratic officer? Now I see it, but like, um, it was always just fun conversations and we were all fighting together. We were all in this together and it just turned, you know, lately, I, I don't, I don't know if that exists anymore. In well, the military. You implied that earlier, like in high school, that you, you would be the one to speak up and say the outrageous thing kind of just to get a reaction. Yeah. And that's not the same mindset of the respect for other people's opinions you just talked about. Mm -hmm. So some, there was some evolution there. You know what it was? I'll tell you what's interesting. So I grew up during, you know, since basically my time in high school. And, and I think ISU did a lot. I was friends with a, a lady. Her name was, was Mary. She was, you know, at the time I considered old. She was probably 40 in class, right? So she like went to school later. And uh, huge hippie, like big time, like peace hippie, like war rope stuff. And... Uh, but we were great friends. And I think, I think about my, my friendship with her, that was great. I think about you know, my intervening time, of course, in the war and in the military. But I'll tell you, in Congress, what has made me speak out the most was coming here in the majority and watching conservative principles that we were trying to push for get tanked day after day by those that were just more interested in going home and saying they were the true patriots. That's the kind of crap that started to anger me, and, and it's only gotten worse. So did that trigger like your injustice gene yeah. or the lack of respect or an intersection of those values? Because it sounds to me like that's beyond what we're talking about. That, that made you angry. It did. I think here's what happened. So I can think back to specific moments. We took the majority 
And John Boehner had basically, he had an open rule, which this is all kind of within the, you know, the details. But like open rule basically says anybody at any time can bring an amendment. Now you can imagine that's like hundreds or thousands of amendments, right? He was trying to wear us out. It was a brilliant move. But we were voting on what's called H.R. 1, and at the time it was some government funding thing. And there were hundreds of amendments, so many of them so stupid, like cut $10,000 from the lighthouse or from the White House light bill. Oh. Like this stupid, not worthy of government crap. And I voted against all those bad amendments, and then I get hit shortly thereafter by a group called Heritage Action that said I was one of the Republicans least likely to cut spending. And I realized at that point, oh, by the way, not to mention, after I won, I went flying for the military one day. I land, and I have 800 voicemails because the quote-unquote Tea Party had leaked my phone number and email because... Uh, they wanted us to go to the Tea Party orientation, not the establishment orientation in D.C. <clears throat> and I quickly realized that this was what it's going to be like. You can and, see the beginning of a road oh, yeah. that leads to where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. And you see it. And I, I wish I'd have seen <clears> – <throat> I wish I'd have had better foresight to realize, like, how bad this was going to be. But it, it's uh, – yeah, it was bad. But you saw the early formations. And the Tea Party, by the way – in 2010 is very different than the Tea Party in 2012 and on. Absolutely. So you've talked about, you know, lately a lot about the value of trust and honesty. And yeah. if you don't have that with your constituents, you're not doing your job, uh, even if you're telling them what they don't want to hear. If you're not doing that with each other, with your colleagues here, you're not doing your job. Uh, but that's a hard thing because you can look back at your own life and realize there are times that all of us fail to our own current standard, yeah. right? Times when you were not honest enough, when you were not truthful <coughs> enough. Um, you gave an interview with Stephen Colbert a few years ago, and he was asking you point blank, you know, do you trust Donald Trump? Is he a trustworthy guy? And you said yes. You said, I've talked with him, and, uh, you know, I've heard him, and he's been trustworthy. And not that much after, yeah. suddenly, right, they're saying, no, he can't be trusted with the, yeah. he, he actually should be impeached and removed from office. Does that mean that you were correct? in that earlier interview with Colbert at that time because of some interaction you'd had with the president? Um, or does that mean, looking back, that you probably were deceiving yourself and, and you would think differently now in the same situation? It's a great question. And I actually would say it's some of both. You know, if you, you have to think back to when Donald Trump was elected. So I did not vote for him in 2016. I'm one of the unicorns that did in 2020, which, by the way, I regret. I'll just put that out there. But I didn't vote for him in 2016. And, but if you know, remember at the beginning, then he's, you know, puts all these kind of good people around him. And, and initially there's like some hope. Maybe he'll be okay. Maybe he'll, he'll listen. Maybe that was an act. And, uh, and I think after the Colbert thing had just come fairly recently after an interaction I had had with him on, a, you know, a certain aircraft in the military where he was like, oh yeah, we need to save it. Right. And did it. Plus, we had been talking about some of the Syria issues over, you know, for hours. And uh, so you had data points that I you had could say, some. yeah, he seems trustworthy on these issues, and that's what was in the forefront of your mind, not adherence to constitutional principles, for right. example. Right, and I, but I also think, look, if I went back in time, knowing what, how this would develop and mm -hmm. who he truly is, um, I'd like to think I would have answered differently. Yeah, because I mean, what you've seen lately is this is a man that just. Look, you have to be very self-centered to be president because you're, as George W. always said, he goes, you have to have some level of arrogance because you're looking and going, out of 400 million people, I'm the best person to be president. And, but I, like, when you're willing to destroy the democracy for your own, like, ego, uh, that, I, you could do everything trustworthy prior to that. If I know that data point, then I think there's nothing you do that's trustworthy. As but a there's a lot I do regret in, in those four years, but... I also recognize that when I was probably the only Republican speaking out consistently, mm -hmm. and I'm proud of that. There seems to be some cognitive dissonance, at least for me on this issue, because <clears throat> you've been so outspoken uh, in the impeachment time and since. But in the first impeachment, mm -hmm. you know, when the president was, no matter how you phrase it, trying to convince the Ukrainians to announce an investigation against a political opponent, um, not necessarily to do the investigation, but just to announce this in order to affect domestic politics. Um, you were not in favor of impeachment for that. And I'm wondering, again, if subsequent events have you going over that in your mind and thinking, you know, were those signs there and I was not looking at them in the way I would look at them now? So here's the God's honest truth on that. And 
And I think this is, if you look at other members of Congress that have kind of been quiet recently, it'll give you a bit of an insight. <clears throat> at the time, um, when, when all this started, I, I was talking to various members of Congress and saying, like, this might be impeachable. And people were like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. And you also have the pressure at that moment of, I need to get reelected. And this is where I'm saying, look at this through the lens of everybody in there now. So, you know, I made a lot of statements about this is inappropriate or whatever, where I think there was a terminal decision that the Democrats made, and then I'll get back to the broader lesson, is they got in a hurry to get this thing done. For whatever reason, they wanted this done by the end of the year, and they had no witnesses, and it seemed rushed. Now, again, go, knowing what I know now, if I went back in time, I would vote for the first impeachment. Mm. But at the time, it gave me an excuse, right. legitimately or non-legitimately, to say the Democrats aren't serious about making the case for this, that, so therefore they didn't make the case, and I'm going to vote no. Was that a weakness on my part? Probably a little bit, because that was me saying, hey, this is my reason to vote no. But again, knowing what I know now, I think I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and vote the same way on the first impeachment. But to my Democratic friends out there, if you guys want to keep focusing on that first impeachment as like, well, so-and-so may be good now, but the first impeachment, that's fine. Keep doing it, but don't expect to ever win a coalition that can win elections. And that's the thing with tribalism is we've gotten to where, you know, there's no forgiveness for people anymore. Um, the reason I know a lot of my Republican colleagues that maybe started out as truth tellers aren't anymore is because they'll go tell the truth. You look at Twitter, Twitter praises you for it, and then all of a sudden you take a Republican position because you're a frickin' Republican, and then they're like, I thought you were somebody different. Oh my gosh. And so people just, out of weakness, you pick a tribe and you stick with it. Is the tribalism better on national security issues? Because at least when we grew up, that was the case, that foreign policy never truly stopped at the water's edge like the old adage went. But there, was, there were better opportunities for consensus to be across otherwise really different ideological coalitions. And now I feel like even national security issues are more politicized than before, You're both right. in terms of debates in Congress and even, I hate to say it, but in the US military, there, there appears to yes. be this creeping partisanship and politicization on issues that, that used to be areas to work together. A hundred percent, you're a hundred percent right. Is it better than other issues? Yes, it is rapidly matching other issues. Um, I mean, look at the friggin' vaccine situation, right? Okay, I've even had my booster. Like, I, the vaccine's fine. There's no microchips, right? It's, it's if you have a reaction, that's a good thing. And it, even if you have a blood clot, as terrible as that is, it's much more rare than you get from doing it with COVID. But yet, somehow, the vaccine, even in the military, is now a tattoo of your politics. Um, that's a frightening thing. But on, on foreign policy issues broadly, I've been on the Foreign Affairs Committee since, like most of my time in Congress, and not until, I guess now, three years ago when the Democrats took the majority. Was that three years? Yeah. Um, we, have, we had never had, never had a roll call vote on that committee. Now, what that means for those that don't know is typically we'll bring a bill up and it is so agreeable that we just pass it on a voice vote. Mm -hmm. Anybody can call for a roll call where you can say no or yes, but we should just pass them on voice votes. Very first thing we did, and I was pretty outspoken about this on the committee under the new leadership, is voted to prevent the United States from supporting Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. And, you know, that most of these people had no idea what was going on in Yemen. They had no idea that Iran, you know, has given no humanitarian aid. They parked these missiles in the middle of civilians so they can be killed. Um, and, and since then, it started with the Democrats, but since then, every you know, good thing we put up, Scott Perry, for instance, has some controversial amendment to attach to it. And we end up in markups, which is where we pass these things out of the committee. What used to be a 10-minute thing is now all day. And nobody anymore, there are some, and I, I give you know, Gregory Meeks, the chairman, even credit for this, and Mike McCall, but there are not many people left that, that keep the water's edge thing intact. That's very scary because... I really believe, I say this facetiously as a kind of a joke, but sort of serious. If China nuked California, most Republicans would say, good, now we can win the next presidential election. Or if China nuked Texas, Democrats would say, good, we can now win the next presidential election. It's sad, but that's what I feel like is the truth. I want to say you're wrong on that, but I'm not sure I can. Right. Because I'm not seeing it. And how do you, how do you fight? 
I mean, you know, I think part of the thing that could have led to the tribalism in this country, which, by the way, if you want to know what this leads to, ultimately, look at Afghanistan. That is tribalism at its, like, best, in mm -hmm. essence, or its worst. Um, but, you know, for 50, 60 years, this country was united, Republicans and Democrats, by a common hate for communism. When the Soviet Union fell, we basically were able to, and I, you know, obviously I don't mean this in, in a joyful way, but we were able to inherit, in essence, terrorism as our common fight. Mm -hmm. Well, we've basically beat terrorism. It's still something we have to fight, but... And now we have no enemy. And China's kind of moving to the competition position that we should be, but I, feel, I fear we're too divided to recognize that. Yeah. You know, when I was at CIA, our training put into us this sense of looking objectively at national security issues, apolitically. Mm -hmm. um, call it like you see it. Describe the situation that's there. Give the information to primarily the executive branch to execute better foreign policy. That's the ideal. That's the way we teach it in, in schools. Oddly, given that CIA and Congress institutionally haven't always gotten along, there's almost a similar purpose in Congress because you're not executing the foreign policy. You're, you're doing oversight of foreign policy in the committee. You're influencing foreign policy, but that's a commander-in-chief function right. and the Secretary of State and Defense and others executing that. How do you see that role in Congress of the, especially the foreign affairs oversight, how has that evolved since you first came to Congress in terms of doing that in terms of providing useful, appropriate oversight and helping foreign policy get better? So I think it's actually, it doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually a very strong Article Two person on, I think the president has a lot of you know, leverage on foreign policy because you cannot have, and particularly today, 535 commanders in chief, right? I remember back, I was the first member of Congress, by the way. I even beat McCain, who I love, and I beat him on this. First member of Congress to call for bombing ISIS. And that was before we even knew it was ISIS. We still thought it was Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. I think they had gone into Fallujah or one of those. And uh, I remember I'm on ABC this week, and everybody's like talking about it. You know, you want to go to war again. Well, it ends up being right. But the problem is Ted Cruz then immediately goes, we can't bomb ISIS because then we're acting as Al-Qaeda's air force. But then he's running for president saying he wants to carpet bomb ISIS, right? It's always this like members of Congress are not genuine about foreign policy. They're going to say whatever benefits them at that moment. Where have we evolved? Like obviously we have oversight in terms of funding. The Foreign Affairs Committee has really abdicated its responsibility for State Department oversight. So, you know, the Armed Services Committee does an NDAA every year, National Defense Authorization Act. We should be doing that for State Department, but we don't. So State Department acts kind of without the control of Congress. And I think State has a lot of questions to answer to, to be honest with you as well. I, they're very important, but they have a lot, of an a lot of questions. But what I fear is that we've gone from playing that constructive role like, you know, we're spending this money here, or is this really the right policy, to just politics. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to go after the State Department because China's a good weapon to use against the Democrats. Democrats will go after, you know, the war in Yemen because that's a good thing to use against Republicans. Right. Tell me about the information you get to do that kind of oversight on foreign affairs. Uh, my former colleagues at the agency come here every week to give briefings to members and staff to, to help. But... Do you have enough time for that kind of information to give you what, in theory, should be objective, timely, and accurate intelligence? Not a ton. I mean, look, if it's a, if it's a big issue, so when you know, the Trump administration was negotiating with Afghanistan and they got rolled, by the way, like worse than Neville, Neville Chamberlain, but when they were negotiating, you know, we would have intel briefs on the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, the guy, I forget his name, the main guy that was negotiating that deal, who was a big failure, sorry, i got to oh, say uh, it, yep, he'd come in and talk to us. So we would get that kind of level of information. Um, I feel like we actually got much better briefings under the Trump administration than we did under Obama or Biden. Um, but there's always a lot of stuff that's kind of left out there to question. And to an extent, I understand it because members of Congress do leak. Um, I think they're pretty good at not leaking very like extremely serious stuff, um, but yeah, I, I, I wish there was more information, but I recognize it because everything goes through a political lens now. What, what is a way to make that happen? I mean, is there some fundamental reform of the way intelligence is handled? Is there something about, in a sense, training members when they first get elected about classified material to enable a better flow of information? I think all that's good. 
I think if you, you know, and the thing is, again, if you think about it, not to point anybody out, but there's massive differences in even basic things like the sport of Israel, which used to be kind of, you know, fully agreed to. Um, I think it's. I think there. I think we should implement on ourselves penalty for leaking classified information, which I don't think exists right now in Congress, because we inherit basically the equivalent of TSSCI security clearance as members of Congress. I mean, you know, Homeland's not too far from from the truth. Um, I think training about the damage this can do, because I think what a lot of people don't understand is if CIA collects a piece of intelligence. Right? There's a lot of people out here that assume that's from a satellite or some magic thing. It may be a human source. Yeah. And if you look specifically at some of the things recently, you know, where human sources have been compromised because you know, we understand you know, Iran or Russia or somebody can look at something and say there's only one way the United States would know this. And if we leak that information that we knew, they know who that goes to. Yeah. Let's return to the, the values that we started out yeah. talking about. You've talked a lot recently about the importance of trust and honesty in all of these respects. Um, and, you, and you put it into a conversation about we're better than this. We're better than what the public discourse has become. We're better than the tribalism that we see. What if, what if we're wrong about that? Because I, I want to believe the same thing. And I find myself sometimes looking in the mirror and questioning whether that is, that is hope or yeah. whether that is reality. Uh, what if we're wrong about our belief that the mass... American public want to return to a place where we have trust in each other, where we treat each other with respect? So it's an interesting question because I kind of agree with, with some of what you say there, which is if you'd asked me a year ago, I, I still believe there was this kind of inherent American thing that always led us to bigger, better, and stronger, you know, and respectful. What I've realized is a couple things. I think that is kind of in our nature, but we need leaders. And we don't have leaders anymore. Um, you know, it used to be like if, if a leader stood in front of the American people and, you know, urged you to better things, that would, that would spread. You think of George W. on 9-11, right? His kind of calming, quoting Psalms 23 and standing there, we hear you, the people that hear you, right? That was unifying. If you have a president that stands up and says, you know, these people that believe this are the enemies, the media is the enemy of the people. Uh, these people are the enemies. Here's what I believe, and this comes from my spiritual side. We all have a battle in our heart every day between light and dark. That is a real fight, right? If you, if you put me somewhere for long enough, you could probably program me to be as racist as anybody. You could probably do that with a lot of people, if I, particularly if I push away my faith. Every day you have to battle between light and darkness. When a leader stands up and speaks the darkest part of your hearts to you, it gives you permission to let it overwhelm you. And I got to tell you, letting darkness overwhelm you is the most comfortable thing because you don't have to fight it. You have to fight against darkness. You don't have to fight for darkness. And I think that's what's happened. And the problem is today we have leaders that instead of standing up and taking strong points of saying, guys, here's where this division leads to. It leads to civil war. And by the way, you may be sitting around yearning for civil war because you have a new gun and you have camouflage and you're 70 years old and you never actually fought in the war, but now this is your chance. But by the way, your eight heart medicines that you use to stay alive every day, CVS is shutting the hell down during a civil war. So you're dead. And your kids that you love, that you think you're fighting for, they're dead too. You think it's a general principle that the people out there in, whether it's Facebook or other places, calling for civil war, talking about taking down authority, are people who haven't seen war up close. I think so. And I think you're either a psychopath to want to fight, you have no understanding of what war really is, or you know somebody will inevitably point to some veteran that's been in war then that wants to do that. Yeah, yeah that's true. There, I'm not going to say this is a broad brush for everybody, but I will tell you, if that veteran, that veteran in some cases probably just wants to be needed again, and all of a sudden now he can lead this revolution or he's been programmed to believe. Listen, our founding fathers fought the Brits because we had no representation. Okay, What we're talking about fighting for now is because you know somebody teaches critical race theory in school or because the government wants you to have a healthy vaccine. Like, oh yeah, that's, that's tyranny. Oh my gosh, you're going to deliver the vaccine to my, my house? How dare you? It's fundamentally about folks. honesty too, at least in the the so-called critical race theory controversy, which right. as you know, isn't really a controversy, right. but the idea of 
teaching our history honestly instead of whitewashing it, right. that supports the core value of honesty that, that you've made one of your calling cards. Yep. Um, and that can be uncomfortable. That means you're talking about things that maybe your own ancestors did that you're ashamed of. That doesn't mean that you can't act better in the future. If anything, that, that is the tool to drive yourself to be better. Yep, that's to, right. And to put that value into practice. That's right. And I would say to my Democratic friends, too, like, there is a backlash against liberalism in this country, like big L liberalism and, and small L liberalism as well. You have to, we, and I, I mean, we all have to do better at this. Recognize there are people in middle America that used to vote for you that have been hopeless for a very long time. And Donald Trump, to his credit, even though he abused them, he gave voice to what they were feeling that we were all scared to say. I mean, honestly, there is a way to bring them into the fold, to give people opportunity. And I got to tell you, and this is a whole nother discussion, and it's one of the things I'm passionate about with Country First is like, I recognize we're all plugged in the matrix. And the matrix says, if you don't like what Joe Biden's doing, you have to support Donald Trump. People I mean, literally tell me I got to vote for Donald Trump because I don't like Biden. Like, are you kidding me? There's a whole world of stuff out there. There's a whole world of different options for president. There's a whole world of different options for solutions. And we are still debating the same solutions 50 years ago to very different problems. The inner city of Chicago should, actually has way more in common with rural America than anybody else, but they are politically, diametrically opposed for right. some reason. I have in my hands here what we call the, the chatterbox. And what we like to do in these conversations is have you reach into the chatterbox. Okay. Don't worry, there's no the gum jabar. <laughs> this is not a dune thing. But there are some random questions that are okay. on pieces of paper, and you get to reach in and grab one. All right. And I will ask it of you. Uh, all right. Uh, there's two, so maybe you pick or usually maybe big, that's just one. Usually big think questions. All right. Let's see if this one actually is. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old mm. self, what would it be? That's a really good question. You know, if I could give, like knowing what I know now, I think it's, it's man, it's because I, I have a couple competing. I'll give myself two pieces of advice. Number one is don't worry about your status and how people see you. You know, I think that drives a lot of people to perform stronger to, to what, and, and I think it takes away the ability to, to grasp every moment you live in. That would be one. The biggest thing, though, is I think put yourself empathetically in other people's shoes and learn how to talk to them from their perspective. That is, knowing that, you know, 20-year-old Adam was going to be going forward and being a politician um, is just like, look, I should have, you know, every politician should have, but I should have seen what was going to happen in 2016, mm -hmm. that there were people that felt disaffected, that they needed a voice. What they needed, though, was a voice that wasn't going to abuse them, but was going to inspire them. Right. Um, that would be another piece of advice, I think. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I would sit down and certainly have a, a beer because I was drinking at 20 anyway at ISU mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and give myself a whole lot of advice. I think the other thing, too, is just appreciate people around you. Are you a better listener now than you were then? I think so. I'm not going to say I'm the best listener, but I'm, I'm certainly better than I was at 20. You know, you, you, what I recognize is sometimes I get so focused on what I believe is right that I just, I, you know, even today you can get stubborn and saying, no, yeah. you can't support Donald Trump or no, you can't do this. Well, I need to do a better job even now of listening to, okay, why, mm -hmm. right? And that's what I say to people. Look, if, you, if tribalism is so bad, and it is right now, if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, find somebody that has a very different view from you mm -hmm. and just listen to them and hear them out. Because here's the interesting thing. The biggest driver of division and darkness is fear. It's why the Bible warns against fear in every verse. It's, it'll destroy people. The truth is, if you take the most left-wing Democrat, the most right-wing Republican, and you boil it down, they have the same fear. The fear is the country's going to leave them behind. Mm -hmm. The truth is, this country's a big country for everybody. And finding the solution to that does require the honesty and truth about yeah. calling out the real problems and calling out the obstacles to that kind of solution that you want to get to. Yes. Yeah. The real problem is not critical race theory. The real problem is uh, that people are stoking cultural divisions in this country. Mm-hmm. Lastly, the, the hard part about honesty that you've talked a lot about is that honesty can really cut both directions. Mm -hmm. You know, any virtue taken to its extreme is a vice. And brutal honesty 
uh, can be hurtful, it can be disrespectful, um, but it can also be misleading because you may think that you have the truth, like you said. I know what's right and damn it, I'm going to say it. But at a certain point, part of honesty is also being honest with yourself and mm -hmm. saying, maybe I don't have the whole truth. Maybe I do need to listen to other people and realize, no, maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. It's really hard, and I think it goes back to fear. Yeah. It's really hard to say on a core issue you care about, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe mm -hmm. I need to listen why other people whom I respect, why they think differently. Because it can't be that they're all stupid. Yep. Uh, that's really hard to do. And especially as a congressman. <laughs> it is. And particularly in this moment where, you know, as Madison Cawthorn recently said, as Donald Trump always says, um, never apologize. Right. Yeah. I don't understand that. But because I remember not maybe six months ago, I called out Pastor Jeffries in Dallas for being anti-vax. And he wasn't. He's done a lot of other stuff I don't agree with, but he wasn't anti-vax. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out that he wasn't anti-vax, and I apologized to him on Twitter. And actually, you realize people are desperate for people to apologize. Right. People are desperate for that recognition that you don't know everything. And if we can get back there as a country, we'd be in a much better place. You gain credibility by doing that instead so. of losing it. Yeah, I right. think so. Adam, thank you for your oh, time. Oh, it's great. It's been thank fun. You. Yeah, it's been awesome. Go Bloomington, normal. Go, Red, go Redbirds. <laughs> that was Chatter a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.